you know, I had to laugh. I was, uh, I was, I won't, I won't tell you who it is, but I was in the Oval Office with the President of the United States and a very high-ranking Republican who you would know in the Senate. And we were talking about my budget. This is before I was the chief of staff. And this senator looked at my budget, looked at the president and said, Mr. President, let me tell you one thing. No one has ever lost their job for spending too much money in this town. They have lost it for not spending enough. Hey, it's Johanna Masca, and on this episode of Press Advance, we're talking about an issue that will surely make its way into the Republican primary debates, the country's debt. I can tell you this, our nation was careening towards bankruptcy before the debt deal, and it will still be careening towards bankruptcy after this debt deal. I'm the king of debt. I'm great with debt. Nobody knows debt better than me. I've made a fortune by using debt. Last week, Washington agreed to suspend the country's $31.4 trillion borrowing limit until January 2025. To contextualize $31.4 trillion, it's approximately 215 times Elon Musk's net worth. It is not always a bad thing to have debts, and there are plenty who would argue that it's important to take on strategic debts for investments. But as we pass this milestone, heading into an election year where a president who called himself the king of debt is on the ballot in the Republican primary, I wanted to get the take of my fellow News Nation contributor and the former director of the Office of Management and Budget under President Trump, Mick Mulvaney. Why does the debt ceiling even exist? Well, there's a historical reason it was supposed to make it easier to borrow money back during World War I. It's morphed into a reason to talk about why you are going into debt uh, further and further. So um, it has been, uh, it's worked, actually. In 1990, they negotiated the, the, um, the balanced budget deals because of the debt ceiling. In 2010, they, uh, 2011, they had the Budget Control Act because of the debt ceiling. 2017, actually raised spending because of the debt ceiling. You guys were in the White House. Now you have control of government spending. And there were not budget cuts. No, that's, that's not right. Um, the, keep in mind, the way it works is that, yeah, we were, we were in the White House. There's no question about that. The White House doesn't control spending. In fact, every lawmaker will tell you they pretty much ignore the president's budget anyway. The way our constitutional system works, Congress spends money. Um, now, this is not a defense of my party because for 2017 and 2018, the Republicans were in charge of the House and the Senate and spending did go up. But that wasn't Donald Trump. That wasn't the White House. Our budget proposals actually pretty dramatically cut spending. In fact, I've been called all sorts of nasty things. Mick the knife is my favorite um, because of the proposals we had at the White House to cut spending. But the Republicans on the Hill uh, refused it because everybody likes spending money. I mean, that's that's where we started here. I asked, you know, why are we here on the debt ceiling or the debt? The reason we're $32 trillion in debt is that politicians love spending money. And the real dirty little secret is Republicans like it almost as much as Democrats do. The only real difference between the parties, Johanna, is that uh, what they like spending money on. Republicans love spending it um, on defense. Democrats love spending it on social welfare payments. And everybody loves spending it in their own district. So um, that, that's how you get $32 trillion in debt. So I totally hear you that the Trump administration, you're saying that your budget was cutting spending. But what were you suggesting cutting? Because President Trump did not suggest cutting Social Security, which is the great majority, like 25%. 
that's the biggest amount of money, right? Is Social Security. Yeah, entitlement spending is, is, is the biggest piece, all things considered. We actually did propose cutting Social Security. We did not propose cutting the Social Security portion that pays retirement income to folks after they turn 62 or 65 or 67. But Social Security is much bigger than that. The way I describe it to people is actually that Donald Trump's budget that I wrote in 2017 was the largest proposed entitlement spending cut in history, okay? But it did not touch Social Security old age income, and it did not cut what we call mainline Medicare, the stuff that pays for for hospital visits and, and medical care for folks over 65. Entitlement spending is so much more than just those two things. We cut tens of, or proposed to cut tens of billions of dollars out of those other programs. So I, I, I do laugh when, when Donald Trump goes on and says, I, I didn't cut Social Security. Actually, we did propose the largest cuts to Social Security in history. We just didn't cut the part of Social Security that most people care about. The reason I get so disappointed when I hear the Democrats and Republicans talk about, oh, you know, we need to, we need to fix this. We can't touch this and all that kind of stuff. If you can't cut the, uh, there's a provision in Medicare that helps pay for um, medical school tuition for students, okay? That's actually part of your Medicare. You didn't know that. Most people who pay Medicare taxes don't know that. We propose to sort of phase that out in order to try and save money. Um, If you can't cut that, and Washington can't cut that, even though nobody cares about it other than the doctors, um, then you're never going to be able to fix the larger, broader Social Security and Medicare programs. So I grew up in Galesburg, Illinois. Um, Galesburg is a place that lost Maytag. Our economy was not stellar. Like, it was... President Obama talked about it in 2004 because adults were competing with their kids for jobs minimum wage jobs. We have a lot of people who right now are hurting. They are, in some cases, qualifying for government assistance. In in many cases, I mean, people who I know very well, they need Obamacare. I am a firm believer of, you know, be fiscally conservative, but not penny wise and pound foolish. How do we do that with the federal government? Because I got to say, you know, it sounds good to cut entitlements. And then you see people in Galesburg, Illinois, who are going to be cut. And what happens is they fall into homelessness. And this is what happened. Like, you know, I my town was really in the aftermath of Reagan, trickle-down economics, and it, it didn't work for us. Um, and listen, I grew up, I, I live still, and I grew up in the South that was just destroyed by NAFTA. We lost all of our textile jobs. I think about 80% of my county worked in the textile business. North Carolina just was in the furniture business. All that business left after NAFTA. So I've, I've been through similar sorts of things. That's not the debate that that's not the debate we're having. We're not talking about getting rid of the social safety net. The example that I, I, I give to people in addition to the, uh, the tuition subsidies for doctors um, is in Social Security disability payments. Okay, Social Security disability, which is also part of Social Security, Okay, it's taken out of our payroll taxes. Again, we think all of that money is going to our retirement, and most of it does, or at least a lot of it does, but some of the money gets sort of spun off and go someplace else. This shouldn't surprise anybody. Anytime there's a giant pot of money in Washington, D.C., politicians look at it and go, oh, I wish I could spend that someplace. So at some point in the last 60 years, we decided that we were also going to have something in Social Security that says if you're truly disabled, 
then you get a benefit. And that makes sense. It's part of the social safety net, and I don't have a difficulty with that. However, by pure coincidence, and I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek, it was the most rapidly growing federal program in the federal government in 2013 through 2015 or something like that. And what we found was that claims on Social Security disability went up as soon as people ran out of unemployment insurance. Um, so it was one of those things was as, as, as conservatives, we looked at that and said, you know, why don't we make it a little bit more difficult to qualify for Social Security disability so that we can make sure that the people who need it can still get it, but they cannot be abused by people who don't really need it. And that was the debate that we had, of course. That was a debate we had mostly with ourselves, because as soon as it walked out of the White House and went up to Capitol Hill, everybody ignored it. So it's really Capitol Hill that it's whatever their district, you know, what they're looking for, they're the ones who are the holdup. Is that what you would say? Because, I mean, (laughs) <laughs> the Obama administration was very frustrated with Congress as well. They spend the money. Well, no, yeah, the Obama administration loved to spend money, just like the Trump administration loved to spend money. But the Congress spends the money. That's the constitutional way it's set up. The, the only reason the president even offers a budget is because of the Budget Control Act of 1973. I mean, you, but technically, if the president doesn't do a budget, it doesn't make a difference. Um, Congress can still and would still spend money. So take an, imagine a year when, let's say I just decided, you know what, we're not doing a budget this year. Okay? They, the Congress would still go through their process. They would still appropriate funds. Money would still be spent. It's not like it's an, a critical part of the, of, of the process. No, Congress likes spending money. It's always easier to say yes to people than it is to say no. And it's they're reelected every two years or every six years, and they need to be reelected. I, uh, you know, I had to laugh. I was... Uh, I, was, I, won't, I won't tell you who it is, but I was in the Oval Office with the President of the United States and a very high-ranking Republican who you would know in the Senate. And we were talking about my budget. This is before I was the chief of staff. And this senator looked at my budget, looked at the president and said, Mr. President, let me tell you one thing. No one has ever lost their job for spending too much money in this town. They have lost it for not spending enough. That's a Republican talking to a, a Republican senator, talking to the Republican president. So that sort of gives you some insight as to, you know, as to where at least that party is. And then, of course, Democrats love spending money more than we do. So, or at least a little bit more. I mean, I think it's funny because I worked for a president and I do believe President Obama, look, our campaign, we were lean and mean. And, you know, we would try to spend money to targeted, you know, areas and that's because it, that's because it's your money. Everybody's conservative with their own money. It's how do you spend somebody else's money? But that's the funny thing. I th- we we wanted to be that way in the administration, but then you say, okay, we're going to cut something, and then someone comes back and says, you've now cut all of these things in my district. You can't cut that. You've you know. So to the extent that sometimes they have reasons, you're right about that. So before Trump took office, the total U.S. debt was around. $20 trillion, right, at the end of fiscal year 2016. I think that's about right, yeah. It rose to about $26.9 trillion at the end of fiscal year 2020. And then, of course, you know, in that point, it's about $7.4 trillion increase, right? Now it's continued. We've continued to see this. Tr- $3 trillion about was on COVID-19 related stimulus. That sounds about right. We, the, the, the general sort of rule of thumb for the Trump years was that we averaged outside of COVID about a trillion dollars a year. 
which was on the same sort of trajectory that that Obama had. So it's, it goes up a little bit every year because of inflation and so forth and the size of the government grows. And we can talk about that. But generally speaking, um, the ordinary Trump uh, administration, or at least the spending of the, of the federal government during the Trump administration, generated about a trillion dollars a year in deficits. And then you added on top of that someplace between three and four for COVID. And that's how you get your, your seven trillion during the Trump. Well, and COVID funding at the time, you know, everyone was terribly worried about the economy. But before that, do you remember this? Because I remember Brett Baer would have the, you know, debt clock and it's ticking up, 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 up. And he's saying to Steven Mnuchin, how are we not seeing massive inflation? And Mnuchin, you know, he'd say, like, you told me when we hit this number, we're going to see massive inflation. But it seemed Trump was leaning on the Federal Reserve chair to avoid inflation. Is that accurate? Or why why were we not seeing that massive inflation before the pandemic? Um, well, a couple of things. Um, you, you had you didn't have any of the, the COVID related uh, supply shocks to the system. Inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. OK, that's what it is. And the reason we had it during COVID is we gave people a bunch of money, but they weren't making anything because they couldn't get to work. And because there was there was supply chain risks or supply chain difficulties. Again, too much money chasing too few goods. During the Trump years, yeah, we pumped a trillion dollars in just like Obama did. And there wasn't much inflation during Obama. But we also sort of made it possible to make more stuff. We deregulated the industry. We lowered taxes and so forth. And those tend to encourage more production. So yes, there was more money in the system. People were making more money because more people were at work than they had been over the previous administration. But since they were making more things, there was no inflation. You had more money, but you also had more goods. Um, That's a formula for price stability. You get inflation when you have more money and you don't have more goods. And that's where we were starting at COVID. We, we threw a, a, you know several trillion dollars at the problem and we paid people not to make anything. If you pay people not to make anything, you're by definition gonna have inflation. Well, and that was, um, when we look at it, we paid a lot of fraudsters too, people who were literally taking out PPPs. And, you know, I, I do, every time I hear this, oh, we don't need all these IRS agents. I'm like, I want them to go after any fraudsters. Don't we all agree about that? Yeah. Yeah, we, we do. It's two different things though. Keep in mind, say the fraud, uh, let's say most of the fraud. And again, it's been six years since I've looked at the numbers very closely, but, um, most of the fraud would occur in the mandatory programs. Um, Medicare, Medicaid, that it's really, you know, that's typically what those, why is that? Because they're so big. Okay. Right. There's a, the, the, you, we spend tens of billions of dollars, actually hundreds of billions of dollars a year in social security, Medicaid and those, and, and those types of programs. They're so big that even if you have fraud, that's only like 1%, it's a huge, huge number. IRS wouldn't catch that. It's those individual programs that the Social Security Administration should catch Social Security fraud. The Medicare folks should catch Medicare fraud. And the same is true for Medicaid. Your IRS folks might catch some of it because maybe some of that filters through to somebody's tax return. But the IRS, while they can catch tax fraud, they're unlikely to catch Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security fraud, other types of government contracting fraud, those types of things. But okay, so the people who took out PPPs for cars... That's fraud. It all went through the bank, right? Because the banks were the ones loaning out the money 
not the administration. So how do you catch all of the people who were doing that and buying cars with that money? It, isn't that through the IRS? You can start tracking it? Um, you know, it's a really, no, because the IRS can't, can't really find you except through your tax returns, right? I mean, I guess they can. If you don't file a return, they can still find you for sure. But no, I think maybe that's one of the criticisms that folks had of these programs is we were we panicked and we threw money at everything and didn't set the infrastructure necessary to sort of make sure it wasn't abused. Um, by the way, it's one of the reasons that, um, you know, people worry about having their identity stolen. It's usually not because the bad guys want to steal your money out of your account. Sometimes they want to do that. But mostly what they want to do is, is sign up for all the federal programs that you might be entitled to and take that money for, um, instead of you getting it. So, um, listen, the IRS, uh, I, I'm not a big fan of the IRS uh, expansion for a, for a particular reason. It was used in order to fudge the numbers. We had the same pressure on us when we went to go write our first budget in 2017. They looked at me and said, you know, Mick, if you spend an extra dollar on an IRS agent, you can make the argument that that, that person will bring back in a dollar fifty in in audit, um, and that's you know that's that that helps the deficit. So you can actually pay for other programs by plussing up the IRS. We all thought that was crap. Um, so we had some very small increases, I think, to the IRS, not very much. In fact, I think a couple of years we might have been flat or even reduced it a little bit. Um, but it's a budgetary gimmick that administrations from both parties have used for years. And that's my biggest problem with the IRS thing. It had very little to do with actually catching fraud and all that, everything to do with how the government counts um, when it comes to spending and revenues. Well, shoot, I want to find that money that went out the door. I think you're right. The, what you said, the panic, money went out the door. Uh, Washington tends to like to measure its compassion by how much it spends. You know, the way we tell people we're doing something is we're spending money on something. And that's another way you get $32 trillion in debt. But that's a longer discussion for another day. So foreign governments owning our debt. Mm -hmm. That's another question that I get from a lot of people other than, you know, why do we even have this debt ceiling? Foreign governments, we've got Japan owns $1.1 trillion Sounds about right. of our debt. Um, they're the largest foreign government holder. Uh, China is the second largest foreign government holder with 859 billion. Sounds right. And then the United Kingdom is the third largest holder of our government debt with 668 billion. How vulnerable are we, especially given that China is in that group um, to them cashing in on that debt? Um, a little bit. It's a different answer for folks like China, who would be considered an adversary or a competitor, and the United Kingdom, which is probably one of our closest, if not our closest, ally. Japan would fall in that same category. So I don't worry too much about the Brits and the Japanese. They do it for a variety of reasons. They like the fact that it's safe. Um, the, if they want to you know, lend money to people. They want to know that 100% likelihood they're getting their money back. China invests for the same reason, but you're right. It, it gives them a little bit of leverage over us. Keep in mind, as huge as those numbers are, um, on a percentage basis, it's not that big a deal. $30 trillion in debt, um, $800 billion is less than, you know, one thirtieth. So it's not, uh, it's not that big of a deal in terms of, of the impact that they could have. It used to be a lot different. I think you go back 10 years and the China no Chinese number was much bigger when the debt was much smaller. And that, uh, that worried me a little bit back when I was in Congress and so forth. But I think that has sort of 
I, you know, I don't want to call it a benefit of, of, of the way we've managed our books in the last couple of years, but they have certainly sold down some of their debt and we've added new debt with other people. And that has changed the percentage, the ratios of the debt that the Chinese control. So they have, you know, I think if they sold everything tomorrow, I'm not sure it would have that big of a, of a long-term impact on our economy. So the other areas that I just want to ask a little bit about, because one thing I think a lot of young people wonder, my my grandmother lived the American dream. She got to go to Fort Hayes State University after going to public school. She was dirt poor, but she got that university experience and then went on and uh, she and her husband were involved in starting a business. And that feels out of reach for people because college is so unaffordable right now. Now, I am a big believer that people don't all have to go to college. Yeah. And there are pathways, you know, through the military and the likes to make sure that your uh, college is paid for. But why is that that for other countries yeah. are not deficit financing their education, which is critical yeah. to our you know, future of jobs on the backs of the brains of our youth. Why do we do that? We, we do that because the government will lend the children as much money as they want. Keep in mind, um, and you and I disagree on the Affordable Care Act, but one of the reasons I didn't like the Affordable Care Act was that it, it, it nationalized student loans. Student, when you and I were kids, student loans were run by banks. We'd have to go down to the bank to borrow money, and they would ask us you know, really interesting questions like, how do you propose to pay it back? Where are you going to school? What are you going to study? And they might lend us money. They might not. Um, that changed with the Affordable Care Act when the, when the government took over the student loan business. Why? Um, go back to the answer I gave you about the IRS. It's the funny accounting rules. By nationalizing student loans, which is taking all of the student loan industry and making it part of the government, the government was allowed to say, well, we're going to make a bunch of money off these loans because, look, these banks have been making money off these loans for years. We're going to make all this money now, and we're going to use that money to help offset the cost of the Affordable Care Act. This is all true, by the way. So the government took over all of these, these loans and essentially started giving people, I mean, this is an exaggeration, as much money as they wanted to. Well, if you're running a university and you're sitting there, well, I could charge $20,000 and they could pay that. But if I charge $40,000, you know, um, and they can go out and borrow, borrow that money from the government, why wouldn't I charge $40,000? And what you've got now is a situation which is just perverse at universities where um, I don't think any two people pay the same price, right? Um, the, some folks pay $40,000 a year. Some folks pay nothing. Some folks get loans. Some folks don't. Some folks get, um, you know, uh, get scholarships. Some folks don't. It's just bizarre. It's, it's, it, it, it's almost as if we don't know how much university education costs. I'm with you, by the way. I, 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 I'm a big fan of trade schools uh, and teaching people vocational trades and so forth. Other countries do that with a great deal of success. I know kids that I went to school with who have who've made tons of money, made more money than I have, and they don't have college degrees because they, they've got skills that I don't have. So, um, But no, it's, it's going to be a problem. I think the two industries that I think are in for a reckoning um, within the next 25 years of the higher, higher ed, which is university education and healthcare. But again, longer story for another day. Well, and healthcare is going to be massive because we've got so many in our aging population. You touched on one thing that I wanted to talk about because banks seemingly are fragile right now, some of them. Um, I mean, we've seen whether it was Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic Bank, Signature Bank. Now, I am a little, you know, I saw Bitcoin, everybody, you know, started throwing money at Bitcoin. Some of these banks that are falling, you know, they were probably over leveraged on all of these different industries. What's 
the reason that they were so fragile? And is it a bigger indicative, you know, situation that we could actually be in a situation where we're ahead of another potential bank failure, which would be terrible? Yeah, you know, I don't get the feeling. And again, I've not seen the data. I'm not in government anymore. So I don't see the really good data like I used to see when I was at OMB or in the White House. Uh, But what happened with Silicon Valley Bank is, is pretty simple, which is they had a bunch of money. And they had to invest it someplace, right? So when I, when you and I go to a bank and we we give them our money to, to hold for us, they have to invest that. And sometimes they lend it out to people, but they also have to have other money that's liquid or really close to being liquid in case you and I come back in and ask for our money back, which we have the right to do, right? And so what they did is with the money that they were holding, they invested that in treasuries, okay? Because that's the safest place to put your money. It's, it's near liquid. Um, they did that over the course of the last you know, 10 years at very, very low interest rates because that's what the Fed was charging. That's what the Federal Reserve said, you were that, that near, int- near zero interest rate environment. And then all of a sudden, in the last you know, year, the Fed starts raising all of these interest rates. And now uh, you know, the 10 years, 4% or whatever the number is, I think the 30 days, 5.5%. Anyway, so if you have a, a, lo- a treasury note, if you have a treasury bill, if you've lent the treasury money at, say, 1%, and interest rates go to 6%, the piece of paper that you hold is now worth a lot less, okay? And if you have to turn that into cash right away and sell it, you're not gonna get 100 cents on your dollar. You might get 80 cents on your dollar or 90 cents on your dollar. That's what happened at SVB. They took all this money, they bought all this low interest, 0% paper, 1% paper, Okay, and they're holding this, and that's the money they were going to give back to their customers if their customers ever wanted it. And the customers came in and said, please give us back our money. And they said, well, okay. Then they had to go out and sell those notes on the open market and take a huge loss. And it was that loss that caused the difficulties. Okay, It's an interest rate risk. It's a duration risk. It's the mismatching of, uh, of, your, of your investment, of your loans versus what you have to do with your dough. It was bad management. It's also bad oversight because it is one of the easiest things for regulators to try and find. I've heard a lot of stories about how the the reforms uh, of 2018, which took, you know, which reduced regulations on bank is to blame for this. That's not the case. Um, We took regulation down a little bit on some of the mid-sized banks. Yes, we did. The stuff that caused SVB uh, to fail is the stuff that the most minimal level of regulation ever would probably should probably catch because duration risk, interest rate risk is the type of thing that the regulators are supposed to look at because it's the simplest sort of thing to catch. It's the same thing that happened back in the savings and loan crisis back when you and I were kids. So um, there's a chance that happens in a lot of different places, but I don't get the impression that it's as it's it's, it's as system wide as say the housing situation was back in 2007, 2008. So do I think we're all the way through the woods yet? No, but I, I, I don't lose sleep at night over, um, over the banking situation yet. So uh, I guess then you're not losing sleep over this, but we could see the economy fall into recession. The Federal Reserve wants it to go into recession. They say they want a soft landing. They'd love to have, you know, just sort of slow down and not quite go into recession, but that's why you raise interest rates. That's 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 how monetary policy works if you're a Keynesian, which is what most of the people of the Federal Reserve are. They're like, okay, prices are too high. Why are prices too high? People have too much money. How do we solve that problem? Well, we destroy demand. It's actually called that demand destruction. We raise interest rates, okay? So it costs more to buy a house. It costs more to buy a car. It costs more for businesses to borrow money to invest to make new stuff. It slows the economy down. And that puts people out of work. 
and that takes pe- money out of people's pockets, and therefore prices will come down because there's not all this pressure on prices because people don't have as much money. That sounds really heinous and awful, but that's how Keynesian monetary policy works. Um, and that's what they're actually trying to do. They're trying to destroy demand. They can, in theory, do it without creating a recession, but no one's going to be shocked if we go at least into a, a shallow recession here if we're not there already in the next couple of quarters. To basically right-size the economy after the inflation, after the pandemic spending and all of the changes. That's the argument. And listen, it's a fair argument. We should have gone into a deep recession with COVID. We told the whole country to stop working. Okay, that's That should drive you into recession. We chose not to go into recession, or at least not as deep a recession. We did go into recession. But we didn't go into a depression because we threw a bunch of money at it. So, I mean, we're just paying the price now for what we chose not to pay for two years ago. Is there any hope that we could get smart people from both sides of the aisle in a room who could right-size what we're spending and make, you know, the right decisions that we can have, uh, you know, the investments we need for a strong economy without waste in the budget? Because I think everybody wants that. Is there, like, how does that happen? Um how has it happened? Um, the answer to your question, I'm going to say, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you a, a depressing answer, but I'm going to explain why. And the answer is no. Uh, not yet is the, is the better answer. And here's why. Because that Republican who sat in the Oval Office and told the president that no one has ever lost their job for spending too much money is absolutely correct. Okay. Um, you, we get the government that we deserve. Everybody loves being fiscally conservative with somebody else's money. Okay. Um, that they like, oh, don't cut my program, cut that person's program over there. Um, until the voters start making spending and debts and deficits an issue, nothing is going to change. We saw a little bit of that during the Tea Party wave in 2011, but certainly, or 2010, but certainly on the Republican side of the ledger, a lot of that died down in 2017. You didn't hear nearly as many fiscal conservatives up on the Hill saying, let's spend less money. In fact, we had a Speaker of the House and Majority Leader wanting to spend more money, and they were Republicans. So, um, look, I, I don't want to be—I don't want to be negative, and I don't want to be sort of pessimistic. But um, Washington is only going to change when it absolutely has to, and right now it doesn't absolutely have to. Well, we're going to see what happens with this debt ceiling. I only have one last question, and it's DeSantis. You thought he talked about substance, and I was really trying to hear substance, but I did hear him like sitting with a couple tech bros talking about Bitcoin, which again, like I'm very interested in blockchain technology. I think that's interesting, but my whole argument has always been like, the U.S. dollar is strong because it's backed by nuclear weapons. And he did talk about, you know, some of what's in his book of his belief in the founders and their, you know, belief in our government and how we need to get back to that. But I didn't hear the substance. What was I missing? Here's, here's what I meant when I meant substance. Um, I thought he had a question about why did you do what you did with Disney? Okay. I thought that was a really good conversation to have. It's one of the reasons everybody knows who he is right now, right? It's his fight with Disney. And I thought he defended himself very, very well. In fact, one of my favorite lines last night was, you know, the left used to attack Republicans for being in the pocket of big business. And now they're attacking us for not being in the pocket of big business. I thought that was kind of funny, but I thought he did a nice job with that. Uh, On the don't say gay thing, I thought he did a nice job of explaining what the law did and why the legislature did what they did and what it does and what it doesn't do and why he signed the bill. Um, I also thought he did a decent job 
on how he handled COVID and why he thought it was different than other states. So I, I thought it was, listen, I, compared to substance, I'm comparing it to Donald Trump. Okay. And I watched the CNN thing and, you know, that was about, there was about 35 seconds of substance in that. I had to laugh on News Nation when we, you and I were both on the program. They had the Trump person on there going, and Ron DeSantis didn't say how he was going to fix Ukraine. He was very, very light on the substance. And I think back to myself of what Donald Trump said about um, Ukraine, I'll fix it in a day. You know, come on, that's not that's not a policy, and nobody believes that. So um, I thought it's not did, a policy. Yeah, it's not a policy. I thought that's why I think Ron did well. I thought he explained himself well in a way that if people really cared about those particular issues, if you're turning in, you don't know that much about Ron DeSantis, you heard about him, you're thinking to yourself, okay, I, I heard about this guy. What's the what's up with this Disney thing? I think those folks walked away thinking, okay, that guy answered my questions last night. And politicians who actually answer people's questions are few and far between. The Disney thing made some sense with the exception that there are a lot of other companies that also have favorable credits in Florida. And he went after just one after a political disagreement, which I still, you know, I really worry about that. I think politicians are very quick to turn on anyone else, make anyone else the enemy. So if you can make big business the enemy, you can make anyone else the enemy. I'm really grateful to Mick Mulvaney for joining me. I started this podcast press advance to go back to our Iowa motto, respect, empower, include. We have real debates in this country, substance that we should hear, but too often we're just not listening. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I did. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please follow wherever you get your podcasts because we'll be dropping more episodes. You can also find me on social media at Johanna Masca. Send me your thoughts and let me know if you want me to read them on the podcast.